Well, greetings to all 126 of us today. Good to see you all back from the feast, and welcome to any guests that we have here, and greetings to all our brethren around the world. At the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews traditionally read the book of Ecclesiastes. In one sense, the book illustrates just how temporary life is. At the feast, we also remember that we are in temporary dwellings, that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I remember that Hebrews 11, verse 3. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We are here in the physical flesh for a temporary period of time. But God wants us to enjoy the good things He gives us, the food, the beverage. He wants us to enjoy the work of our hands, if it is to His honor and to His glory. Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes to begin with. And uh, as you know, King Solomon was rich, of probably more rich than any human being, at least at that time, if not ever. And he experimented with life. He did say, on the positive side, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10, he said, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. There's a feeling of accomplishment when you've been successful, when you've worked hard, and you've fulfilled a goal. Chapter 2 and verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. Well, God provides our every need. Christ chided those in his audience about little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, God provides for the birds of the air. Is he not going to provide for you? So God gives us good things to enjoy. My heart took delight in all my work, he says. Let's turn to Isaiah 65. Well, you can hold your place in Ecclesiastes. But here is the scripture we often use to illustrate what the white throne judgment will be like. And we understand what physical life will be like. Isaiah 65 and verse 22. Isaiah 65 and verse 22. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Today, some people do not long enjoy the work of their hands. Some things are very temporary. Others are very lasting. He goes on to say, And it shall come to pass that they shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. And those are conditions, of course, that are true throughout the millennium and the white throne judgment. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains. So we look forward to that time. We just experienced a foretaste of tomorrow's world during the Feast of Tabernacles. But there are many lessons that we should learn during the Feast of Tabernacles. One, of course, is that life is temporary. And we find that in Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes, the first chapter. 
Here are the lessons of vanity. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. The word vanity, at least in the King James, I believe, is, occurs 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit is a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? And he talks about all the various sore travails that humans experience. Verse 13, verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, vexation of spirit. This is hopeless, absolutely hopeless. What hope is there? All you do is work and you die. You know, you sleep and eat and you die. All of this is vanity. It's a striving after wind, as one of the translations has it. But he experimented. He found certain reward, certain satisfaction from working hard. And we might turn there to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, because it's a truism that should be a part of our nature and a part of our character. Ecclesiastes 9, and verse 10. I remember as a freshman in Ambassador College uh, searching for a job on the campus, and I went into the construction office. There on the blackboard, the first scripture I saw at Ambassador College was Ecclesiastes 9, 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Because when you die, you're not going to be able to have success. You're not going to be able to get rewards. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. That should be a part of all of our character, of our nature, our individual values that we have. That whatsoever we do, we do with our might. But what is vanity? Mr. Meredith, in the Ten Commandment booklet under the Ninth Commandment, uh, Thou Shalt Not Bear False Witness, wrote this, The very root principle of all sin is vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He quotes Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. The real reason most men reject the true God is that they want to be gods in their own eyes and the eyes of their fellow man. It is vanity. Every sin that is committed by human beings has its ultimate roots in this one principle. And so it is with every form of lying. That's in the Ninth Commandment under the, in the booklet, the Ten Commandments. So what is vanity? We have very forms of vanity. One of the forms of vanity is that we, we are the center of the universe. You know, we are the most important thing in the universe. There's nothing more important than I, me. It's the me generation. It's selfishness, self-centeredness. I'll share with you some of the quotes on vanity. Louis Cronenberger states, Nothing so soothes our vanity as a display of greater vanity in others. It makes us vain, in fact, of our modesty. Vanity is so secure, says Pascal, in the heart of man that everyone wants to be admired. Even I who write this and you who read this want to be admired. George Sand wrote, Vanity is the quicksand of reason. Anyway, we because we have biases. This is translated from the Spanish, Antonio Porquia, uh, written in 1943. Without this ridiculous vanity that takes the form of self-display and is part of everything and everyone, we should see nothing and nothing would exist. We would see nothing and nothing would exist <laughs> if uh, we didn't see vanity all around us. Uh, not quite true. 
Author unknown, beauty's sister is vanity, and its daughter, lust. That's never, never passed from human nature. Joseph Conrad, vanity plays lurid tricks with our memory because we want to remember something that exalts ourselves or compliments ourselves rather than is realistic. Edward G. Bulwer-Lytton said, There is nothing so agonizing as to find the, to the fine skin of vanity as the application of a rough truth. In other words, truth is going to wake us up and give us the reality check. So there are various forms of vanity. There is ego, aggrandizement. You promote yourself every chance you get. There's intellectual vanity. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. Let's understand that we all, brethren, have had vanity, and there still is perhaps a tinge of it left in our human nature. We have to examine ourselves and see how much vanity is in us. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the eternal knows, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. I remember one uh, vain intellectual student that um, had taken a test, and he criticized one of my, the questions on my test. And he said, this, this question was inane or something like that. And I So I I addressed him, and I said, you know, you have a little problem here. You know what it is? It's intellectual vanity. And I quoted to him this scripture. You know, I hope it was helpful to that young man. And there's the part, and let me mention this, and I was going to mention it later, but I'll mention part of it now, that there is a trend in the church of God, churches of God, or in some groups, of a change in doctrine. And that is, we need to be aware of course, of the fact that some churches are now beginning to teach that uh, God has, has a family, but God is not a family. That goes back to our former association, but that doctrine is starting to creep into some of the other churches of God. What does that, what, how does that kind of reasoning insert itself in the churches of God? God is a family. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Son of God. The Father is God. He says, of course, in uh, Ephesians that God is the Father, the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God is a family, and God has a family. But what promotes that error in, in doctrine in God's churches? Sometimes it's intellectual vanity. It's we've got to find an intellectual argument to offset a different argument. But you know, Intellectual vanity does not center on the truth of God. And God says he reveals this truth through his spirit. The deep things of God, in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8 through 10. So he says, don't let let no one deceive himself. If any among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, go to the trunk of the tree for real knowledge. As we learned at the feast and heard several times. In Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. That's how you have true knowledge and true wisdom. So there are other forms of vanity, intellectual vanity. There's the vanity of poverty. I am poor and I'm proud of it. 
No, that's a kind of vanity. Or I'm humble and proud of it. That's a false humility. And then there's carnality. Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, hostile against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And that's why we have the wars and the conflicts that are never ending on planet Earth because of vanity, because of carnality, because of enmity towards God's law. What is vanity? I remember Dr. Herman Hay years ago giving an example of human nature. is rather a crude example, but I think very effective. And he said it, he put it this way. What are we? We are simply garbage cans with a lid on it. Now, that, <laughs> if you accept the analogy, uh, you realize uh, you aren't so great. But you don't stay a garbage can. You bury it in baptism, and you become a new creation to walk in newness of life, as it tells us in Romans, the sixth chapter. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. So God has a wonderful plan of salvation to transition us from vanity to truth and lasting values. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're no longer going to be that garbage can. It's been buried, and you are now begotten by God's Holy Spirit after repentance and baptism. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there is the carnality in the intellectual vanity and ego and aggrandizement and the idea that we're the center of the universe. But what another definition of vanity that is very helpful to me and I'm sure will be helpful to you is that vanity is anything that is not lasting. And when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you understand that. All is vanity. It's hopeless. It's worthless. All of this that I've accomplished seemingly is meaningless, as Solomon put it. It's meaningless, and it's basically worthless. So how do we cope with that kind of vanity? Vanity, if we understand that concept that Ecclesiastes teaches, that vanity is anything that is not lasting. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, just back a couple pages, and verse 17. Here it gives us a stronger definition of what is lasting and what is temporary. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. No, we have our problems. We face pain and suffering and trials, which he says in verse 16, for which cause we faint not, though our outward man is wasting away or perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So for us in God's church, we focus on the inward man. That is, God is creating his masterpiece of creation. And that's perfect, righteous, holy, godly character. Verse 18, While we look not at the things which are seen, but which, uh, the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary or temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so the Feast of Tabernacles gave us a vision of tomorrow's world, of the kingdom of God on earth. The things that are not seen are eternal. And our purpose is to become a part 
of eternity. So, in summary of this first section, we see that vanity is not enduring. Vanity is not lasting. But godly values and godly truth are eternal. So let me ask you, are you pursuing temporary, fleeting values, or are you pursuing lasting, eternal values? The title of the sermon is Lasting Value. What do you value most in life? Your possessions? Teenagers have a problem with approval. They want to belong to groups, and so they will compromise. They want approval of their peers. That doesn't mean just teens and youth, but other groups of people, those who are lonely, they want approval. And they're willing to compromise their values so they can be approved. What do you value most in life? Position or power? Let's take a look at what God, how God views human beings. And it's almost comical in one way, but Isaiah, the 41st chapter. But it's very helpful if we have that perspective and understand who and what we are. And that we aren't the high and mighty. God has not called many mighty, not many noble. As we know in his calling of, in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verse 26 on. Let's to, look, take a look here at Isaiah 41. Now, in the context, God is showing that Abraham was his friend, verse 8 of Isaiah 41. He says in verse 10 of Isaiah 41, Fear you not, for I am with you. But at the same time, verse 13, he says, For I, the eternal your God, will hold your right hand, saying unto you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. <laughs> so Jacob is considered a worm. And at the same time, God is trying to give comfort and encouragement to Jacob. But he's saying, look, just realize what you are by comparison. You're a little worm. We saw, where was it, a bird the other day and. uh it was a magpie and a uh, crow. They were kind of uh, arguing uh, near our cabin there over a worm. One of them had it. The magpie kept trying to get the, the worm uh, from, the, uh, from the crow. That little worm <laughs> it was helpless. Uh, it was going to uh, succumb one way or another. But nonetheless, when we see ourselves as worms, uh, we don't have that much ego in us. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, and you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Eternal and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And so he gives a wonderfully inspiring and encouraging exhortation here in, in Isaiah, the 41st chapter. How else does God view us? Isaiah, the 40th chapter, just back a chapter, and verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He that sits upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. Now, how often do you think of yourself as a worm? How often do you think of yourself as a grasshopper? You know, uh, those aren't uh, very uh, mighty creatures in the face of the earth, although someday we may uh, appreciate having grasshoppers around. But he looks at us as little tiny grasshoppers. That's talking about what God does. He stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in that brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. And so we look up to God and we know where our source of strength is. He gives power to the faint, verse 9, 29. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. You know, as some of us uh, age, 
So we feel a little weaker, but uh, we exercised. My wife and I had the opportunity of uh, doing a lot of hiking and uh, really enjoyed it, even though it was 7,500 feet elevation when we were hiking. But uh, nonetheless, it was, it was helpful. And, but you really felt weak. And as we age, some of us feel weaker, and we need spiritual power. They that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. We have to endure unto the end. So God looks at human beings as worms, as grasshoppers. But you know, he values us extremely highly. Take a look at John 3.16. You know that, that verse? It's uh, rather sad sometimes that... Uh, People try to promote that verse in uh, football stadiums and others and just really is not the, the appropriateness, perhaps. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Yes, we can perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. How does God value human beings? Your value, your self-image, your self-value comes not from approval of others, comes not from your own ego. Your value comes from the creator of the universe who said you are special. You as an individual are someone I want in my royal family for all eternity. And as a result, I will send my son to bleed, to die, to suffer for you. And it's like the publican, as I've mentioned before, who said, beat upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And a definite article is there in the Greek. But the Pharisee said, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. And I'm glad I'm not as this adulterer or this publican over here. And every single one of us must be that publican who sometime or other has beaten on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not just a sinner, but the sinner. God values us. Galatians 2.20, you know by heart, but I want to, and as I have before, emphasize one portion of it to understand that your value comes from a higher source, not from your peers, not from the world, not from your job. Your value comes from the one who sent his son to bleed for you and die for you. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Now, if Christ is living in you, you have lasting value, not vain value, not temporary value, but lasting value. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, it's God's faith as a gift, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you understand that Jesus Christ loves you? That he gave himself for you? That should be very reassuring and comforting. That if you were the only human being on earth, Christ would still have to come to this earth, suffer, shed his blood for you and to be resurrected again. So God values all of us extremely. Just this past week, and of course there are various uh, sources to this, 
Uh, this is the Denver Post. This was uh, uh, Tuesday, October 17th. Uh, the United States is now 300 million. We the people, or we the 300 million people. Statistically speaking, the U.S. population rose, rolled past 300 million this morning. That's, uh, they claim it was the uh, 17th. Others say it was the 16th or the 18th. And look at the country by the numbers, and a look at the country by the numbers reveals we're having fewer babies, we're more affluent, we're living longer, and we're using much less of our take-home pay to buy a gallon of milk. It doesn't mention gasoline, but to buy a gallon of milk. Then when we hit 100 million in 1915, the earth has 6.5 billion human beings. How do we view all of those human beings on the earth? God views them, every single one, as special. As Mr. Meredith wrote in the Festival Planner, I think I quoted this to you before, but I think uh, in this particular context it's appropriate. We must fulfill the great commission which Jesus gave his church and in Philadelphia in love preach powerfully the message of the soon coming government of God and also give the Ezekiel warning, Ezekiel 3, to our peoples as the end of this age swiftly approaches. This outflowing concern for all humanity should permeate our minds as we keep the feast. This outflowing concern for all humanity. It seems that our selfishness precludes that. We don't really have, perhaps, the outgoing concern we should. But those of us in God's church, most of us here, are dedicated to the Ezekiel warning, not because we feel we're better than anyone else, but we want others to avoid the Great Tribulation. We want them to repent and to change and to not have to experience torture and pain and suffering in the way that the Great Tribulation will embarrass and enslave our peoples. There's another approach to human value other than God's value, and that's a movement that some of you parents are familiar with in the schools called the self-esteem movement. In other words, you don't correct children in schools, you reward them for everything. If they walk across the room without falling down, you reward them. It's just you you actually start rewarding them for extreme, uh, trivial uh, behaviors. They're not even, we wouldn't even call them accomplishments. But in a book by Jean M. Twing called Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever, As she writes, quote, self-esteem programs are empty and short-sighted. Self-esteem based on nothing does not serve children well in the long run. It is better for children to develop real skills and feel good about accomplishing something. You know, the Jews had a tradition that if you do not teach your child a trade, you teach him to steal. So you teach a young child to develop skills that later on become marketable skills. It may not be his goal in life or a final career in life, but he still can earn something because he has marketable skills. And I'm thankful that uh, God gave me some opportunities as a, as a young teenager to uh, work and earn money working at a wholesale newspaper place, getting up at, uh, arriving there at 3 in the morning, Sunday morning, and unloading the train with uh, all the daily news from New York as it came into Meriden, Connecticut, and offloading tons of paper with some other helpers, taking it to the news uh, distributor. 
Then we had uh, two sacks of new- stacks of newspaper. One was the uh, the news that just came in, and another stack was the pre-printed comic section and advertisements. And you had a rubber thumb you put on. So you had these two piles of newspaper, and you'd you take the rubber thumb and slip back a few pages from the news, and then you'd slap in the comics. So you'd go slap, slap. And so you'd come up with a whole pile of what comes out to your home on Sunday morning with the news, the recent news, plus the pre-printed advertisements and comic strips. And so I worked there probably from two to six Sunday mornings. And uh, my friend uh, who got me the job, his, uh, his uncle, I think it was, slipped an extra dollar into our pay. I got $5 plus an extra one. <coughs> but uh, nonetheless, um, you know, we work shoveling snow or distributing newspapers or mowing lawns. You know, you learn those, those trades even as a young, young boy. Thankfully, God gave me an opportunity to uh, be a teenage DJ at the local radio station in my junior year of high school. But continuing with another quote from the self-esteem movement, instead of creating well-adjusted, happy children, the self-esteem movement has created an army of little narcissists. Narcissism is a very negative personality trait linked to aggression and poor relationship with others. Children are naturally self-centered. Growing up is the process of learning how to empathize with other people. You know, the Greek mythology, wasn't it? The Narcissus, uh, he, he looked in the uh, lake and saw his, his uh, own face, and so he kind of worshipped himself. So narcissism in a sel- sel- is selfishness, self-worship, and these little, <laughs> little army, an army of little narcissists. Uh, very effective writing here. Quote, junk the self-esteem movement and instead teach self-control and good behavior. Self-control is linked to success in life. Help your children to see the consequences of actions in their lives. So these two ways of life, one is vanity, one is of lasting value. Vanity facilitates selfishness. Godly values promote love. Let's turn to Philippians 2 and uh, verse 1. Philippians 2 and verse 1. If there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife and vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, not vanity or ego or self-aggrandizement, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem or value other better than themselves." Look not every man on his own interest, but every man also on the interest of others. Then he goes on to talk about this mind, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who came in the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and humbled himself, verse 8, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So what do you value most? He tells us here that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Godly values promote love, and we value others more than ourselves. <laughs> Sorry, I remember one individual, at least it was a legendary uh, comment, and said, uh, well, this lady came up to one of the professors and said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, you make me feel inferior. And he said, Madam, you are. <laughs> <coughs> Now, I don't know if that story is true, but nonetheless, uh, perhaps she needed a little correction because maybe she was illustrating the vanity of 
of uh, intimidation or the vanity of, uh, of uh, humility or false humility. Let's turn to John, the uh, 17th chapter. John 17. How do we determine what is contributing to godly character and, and lasting value? And what are the lasting values? Well, of course, we know that the core value is just as Jesus said here in John 17, verse 17. He's praying to the Father, and he says, Sanctify them through your truth. You're set apart. You're made holy by God's Spirit and truth. Your word is truth. And he's praying for unity within the church, that we might be one like he is, and that the love, verse 26, wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. We already read that in Galatians 2 and verse 20. But truth is a priceless gift that God has given us. You can refer back to the Sermon on Treasure, the truth. I'll just give you a couple of scriptures on the topic. I won't, uh, you don't need to turn there. Psalm 119, verse 116, 160. The entirety of your word is truth, it says in Psalm 119, verse 160. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Psalm 119, verse 151. You are near, O Eternal, and all your commandments are truth. What is the greatest value of all that is a lasting value? We were commenting at dinner last night about values and family values. It requires godly love. That's one individual said. It's love that generates value. So true love, spiritual love, is lasting and eternal. We, were, we actually sang of the song, 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. Love lasts. The answer to the question of what is the greatest value of all lies in God's purpose for us. It's revealed in the two great commandments, which we often read, but let's take a look at that in Mark, the 12th chapter, verse 29. Mark 12 and verse 29. Now, some of us are loners. I was a, a loner in high school. Uh, so to speak. I had friends. I played basketball, was on the co-captain of the football team, uh, but I still was somewhat of a loner. Uh, dated, uh, had uh, girlfriends, um, and uh, was voted president of my senior class, but I still was kind of a loner. But you realize that what is very important in God's plan is revealed in relationships. And so he says in Mark, the 12th chapter, verse 29, when he was asked by the scribes, what is the first commandment? He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, namely this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is none other commandment greater than these. We know they summarize the first Four, loving God, and the last six of the Ten Commandments, and loving your neighbor. God wants all of us to grow in godly relationships, first with Him and Christ, and secondly with one another. Let's turn to 1 John, the fourth chapter, 1 John 4. Now, we all have different personalities, and God gives us talents and abilities. There are scientists who work alone in, in laboratories and so forth, and... Uh, that's fine for perhaps that particular personality and skill set. 
But nonetheless, God still wants those kinds of individuals and all of us to develop relationships. And the greatest relationship of all is that personal relationship with the Father in Christ. 1 John 4.19 We love Him because He first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from Him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. But it continues. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God, as it should read, and everyone that loves him that begat, that is, God has begotten us through the word of truth, James 1, 17 and 18, loves him also that is begotten of him. So if we love the Father, we're going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. For this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome or grievous. So our relationships then are extremely important as lasting values. We are called to be a part of that royal family. As he says right across the page here, chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Who are called the sons of God? Those who are begotten by God's Holy Spirit. And that's a demonstration of God's love towards us. We saw at the Feast of Tabernacles this year and every year that we are to be kings and priests and judges in God's kingdom. We're part of the royal kingdom and family of God. I won't turn turn there, but 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and verse 9 says that we are a royal family, a royal nation and a holy priesthood. So God has called us to be a part of a holy priesthood, a spiritual house, and a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. He tells us in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. And so at the feast this year, we were inspired by brothers and sisters whom God has called. Every story is unique. I met some, and I suppose some of you did at the feast this year who attended church 20 and 30 years ago and have not attended since. And this was their very first feast in 20 or 30 years. So you don't give up on anyone. You continue with unconditional love towards those who may have left us, because who knows? 20 or 30 years, we may not have that much time, but it's so inspiring to have people come back somewhere healed at the feast. One lady who I believe had had a stroke and was in a walker uh, told me after services that, uh, and she showed me her notebook, how she took sermon notes. And she couldn't focus and concentrate because of her brain problem. And during the sermon, she would draw little pictures, maybe a cat or a balloon or something. And so here she had these notes. And yet, at the end of my sermon, she showed me three full pages of full, handwritten, complete, comprehensive notes. The first time in four years that she was able to take full notes of the sermon. It was so inspiring that God does intervene in miraculous ways in his time and in his way. And to have a lifetime with brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowship with them, one man that I talked to had been in Vietnam, and he said, that was before God called me, and I know God preserved my life, you know, for later on, and that's true. You hear many stories 
of individuals whose lives were preserved divinely, miraculously by God, but not called until 10 or 20 or 30 years later. And this one individual, he was in Vietnam, and he saw that uh, here was an incoming missile towards their tank, and the tank, the, the missile, should have blown them all to bits, but the missile fell short of the tank, and they were able to uh, uh, take care of the enemy. But he was so inspired that God, he looked back on his life and realized, God preserved my life back in the Vietnam War so he could eventually come into God's church. What are the greatest values of all? It's relationships with God and with God's people. And it's that gift of love. Romans 5 and verse 5. Romans 5 and verse 5. The greatest power and force in the universe is God's love because he is love. Romans 5 and verse 5. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. The love of God is priceless. It's unique. Not all human beings have it. Even those who claim to be Christians do not have the love of God. Because the real litmus test of God's love is, are you able to love your enemies? You cannot do that. You can probably kid yourself if you're going to use psychological games and, and say, I'm going to love my enemies. But you can't really do that, truly do that, unless God's Spirit is in you. And he goes on there, remember, in Matthew 5, verses 44 through 48, saying, Become you therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And you can't have that spiritual maturity, that spiritual perfection, unless you come to the place where you have that lasting, greatest value of God's spiritual love, which comes as a gift through the Holy Spirit. That's an awesome gift. Turn to Mark, the 13th chapter, Mark 13. Again, we're looking at those values that are lasting. And it applies to what you do and what I do every day. Are we practicing vanity or are we practicing lasting value? Mark, the 13th chapter and verse 31. Mark 13 and verse 31. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. Something that's vanity, it's, it's temporary, it's not going to last. But my words will by no means pass away. So if Christ's words don't pass away, they are lasting value, they're eternal. And Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if Christ is living his life in us, then we are going to join him in eternity. That way, of course, of Christ's way of life, the way, the truth, and the life, is the way of service, which he exemplified in his life. You know the foot-washing chapter, John 13. You won't need to turn there. But let's turn to Matthew 20 and verses 25 through 28. You know, Muhammad Ali uh, used to say as a prize fighter, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. What defines the greatest? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 25, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. There's total oppression and dictatorship. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, are you the greatest? Let him be your minister, King James, or let him be your servant, New King James Version. 
And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your slave or your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. It's that attitude of service. And as I was giving a sermon during the Feast on Leadership, encouraging people to understand that one of the ways of leading is by serving. And you serve by understanding other people's needs. Uh, some of us are oblivious. I, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but uh, some ladies uh, who are hostesses in their, in their home where my wife and I have been guests, and I notice maybe I need some butter for the bread, and my eye just happens to look over towards the butter. And before my eye even gets to the butter, the hostess is offering me the butter. She's perceptive of my needs so immediately that she's going to serve those needs. Sometimes you have to tell someone your needs. I tell my wife, honey, I need a hug. And so she'll give me a hug. You know, at least, I think it's, was it 15 hugs a day will keep your blood pressure down. So um, that's a scientific fact, I believe. So we all need that love towards one another and that, that relationship, way of service. And as we emphasized uh, at the feast, and as Mr. Meredith did in his last message on the last great day, that we want to encourage all of you to participate in the Living Leadership course. And that's going to be offered here in Charlotte here in uh, another week or two. So I hope all of you will join. I know uh, Mr. Bob League in, uh, in Nashville said he had 75 people in the first uh, lecture in the class of the Living Leadership course. Mr. Dan Hall down in uh, Mississippi said that in a small video group of 15, after Sabbath services, all 15 stayed over to participate in the Living Leadership course. So I hope that all of you uh, will participate in that, men, women, and youth that will participate in the Living Leadership course. It's the way of service. What else is lasting? Let's turn to Matthew, the sixth chapter, in verse 19. Matthew 6 and verse 19. The Proverbs warn us that if you put too much love and focus on your wealth, it will fly away like an eagle. But these values do not fly away. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust corrupts, and where thieves break through to steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust nor do corrupt, or where thieves do not break through to steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Sometimes if you have a decision to make, well, well am I going to um, enjoy my own pleasures or am I going to do something for someone else? And you have to realize that maybe doing that something for someone else is storing up lasting treasures in heaven rather than something that's vanity and isn't contributing to lasting value. What is so important? These are treasures that last forever. John 15, verse 13. What is of lasting value? John 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. That's a sacrifice. It means you are following Christ's example of laying down your life for someone else, your time, your energies. And many of you do that. You go out of a way when someone is ill or sick and you provide food for them. You provide uh, help or comfort. <laughs> I know um, 
one time when I was, uh, you know, in bed, bedridden with back pain for a long time, and and of course I had a uh, pot and a spoon, so that anytime I wanted my wife to help me, I'd bang on that pot, and she'd hear me somewhere in the house and come and help me. And uh, she would change the ice pack on my back and put it in the fridge, and then get the other ice pack out and put it on my back so I wouldn't be in pain. But one of those times I said, "Where is she? I wish she'd come up and check on me." I wish I didn't have to bang on the pot to see that she would come in and see me. And I hope that we can expand our sensitivities and see the needs of others. Is someone ill, someone sick? Give them a call. See if you can help. See if you can serve. Is there any way I can help you? One of the most uh, common ways of serving, and the attitude is, is, of course, is not being defensive when someone comes around, whether it's the office here or at your home or at the business place. How may I help you, or can I help you? That is the, the whole concept of service that Christ, Christ had. Those are lasting values. Are you a servant? Are you a bond slave of Christ? Do you have the attitude of a servant? Christ exemplified that over and over again. These are the true values in life. God's love is shed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and of course you shed that, and you serve through God's love in the way that 1 Corinthians 13 describes, that love is patient, love is kind, doesn't boast, doesn't promote itself. But we also know that we have to stand up for our beliefs, and we, again, face trials. 1 Peter, the first chapter, 1 Peter 1, the Apostle Peter was writing to an area that was under great persecution, and uh, wives had non-member mates that could certainly put them in prison or turn them over to the authorities as Christians. And so the Apostle Peter was giving them encouragement, giving them hope in times of trial and testing. And so in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and fades not away. No, it's eternal. It's lasting value. Reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if be you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials. I appreciated uh, Mr. Meredith's uh, concern for brethren just before going to the feast and knowing that most of us would be joyous at the feast. But there are others who have lost family members to death or in sickness and illness, and he exemplified and encouraged us to have that compassion, that concern, that sensitivity, that love, concern for others who are not in a position to rejoice. There are seasons of heaviness. If need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ, that the genuineness of your faith, much more precious than of gold that perishes. You think of the value of gold. You think of it as something that's lasting. But here he says that even perishes. 
we uh, had the opportunity of visiting the state capital in Denver, Colorado, and uh, it is covered with 200 ounces of gold. And uh, they do have to replace that 200 ounces of gold about every, I believe they said, 13 uh, years or, or 14 years. It isn't that lasting. It seems like it would be that lasting, but they still have to replace it. But your faith is even much more precious than of gold. And you don't want to compromise. Because compromising leads to vanity, to something that is not lasting. And you want to be solid in the truth so that you do not compromise. There are other comments on uh, compromising. I could... uh, I'll find out a little later. But we don't want to compromise. We want to stay steady to the pole and steady to the truth. Golda Meir, Israel, Israeli Prime Minister, quoted in the New York Times, December 12, 1974, talking about compromising. To be or not to be is not a question of compromise. Either you be or you don't be. William Yeats, a uh, Irish poet, said, you know what the Englishman's idea of compromise is? He says, some people say there is a God. Some people say there is no God. The truth probably lies somewhere between these two statements. That's an Englishman's kind of compromise. Well, we don't compromise that way. We stand up for the truth. We stand up and we face the trial of our faith, and that builds character. Do you build up or do you tear down character? 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. Verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon. The Apostle Paul had problems of individuals within the Corinthian church who wanted to be teachers, who wanted to be leaders in an appropriate, inappropriate way. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work will be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. What kind of person are you? Are you steady in the faith? Have you been tested? Or are you a compromiser? If any man's work abide which he has built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know you not that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. So whatever we do in this life, whether it's going to a movie, whether it's uh, playing uh, games or sports or um, taking time to rest or read, We have to ask the question, will this particular movie, for example, help me learn the lessons of life? Is this going to have lasting value or is it vanity? Will this book, will this experience, will this sport game help me learn lessons of life and contribute to lasting character development? It's like everything is vanity, Solomon said. And if you apply the definition that it's uh, vanity is every, anything that's not lasting, then this suit is vanity. But I don't wear it in vain if it is contributing to my character and if it is honoring God. You know, it's like uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong said one time in 
showing love to his wife, you know, when uh, some of us men, when we get up in the morning, or those of us who have a little hair left, find the hair is all disheveled. And Mr. Armstrong said that he did not want his wife to see him with disheveled hair. He would go out of his way to comb his hair so he would honor his wife. It's just an illustration of caring and loving and honoring someone else. This lectern itself is vanity because it's not going to last. We know in the last great day, and we read through Revelation 21 and 22, that the whole earth is going to be enveloped in flames. It's going to be molten and purified. This is not going to be here. This is not going to be here. None of this is going to be here eventually. But if we're using it to honor God, then it has lasting value, value that lasts for eternity because it's contributing to holy, righteous, godly character, which will last for all eternity if we're faithful. We have to, again, make sure that we're not wasting time. As Ephesians, the fifth chapter, brings out that we're redeeming the time and that what we do is not vanity, but is producing lasting value. Ephesians 5 and verse 14. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You sing and make melody, and you're very thankful. That's how you exemplify and radiate God's way of life and His truth, and you redeem the time. You do those things that are enduring. What endures forever? I'll just give you a couple other references. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His names, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. And uh, over the page, let's turn back to First Peter again. I think I've already shared this principle with you of those things that endure forever, that are lasting. First Peter 1 and verse 24. Sorry. First Peter 1, verse 24. For all flesh is as grass. We are temporary, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the eternal, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. As we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians 4.18, the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Turn to Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation 3. So God is creating in us wonderful Human, not human, but godly, divine nature. Revelation, the third chapter. We have our part. We have to cooperate with God. We endure trials and tests as gold tried in the fire. But here in Revelation, the third chapter, he says, verse 11, to the Philadelphians, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. What is it that you have that you have to Hold fast to. I remember giving a speech in a freshman speech class, and I hadn't had speech classes before, um, but I had played a lot of golf, and I remember drawing the analogy of holding on to the golf club and not letting go. 
But there's something much more valuable than a golf club to hold fast to, and that's to God's truth, the true values and the godly values. We, we stand for truth. And that has to do with what is in one's heart and one's mind. What really makes you, you? It's what you have been tested in your heart and mind, what your beliefs are, what your character is, what your convictions are, what your true knowledge is, determines who and what you are. You're begotten by God's Holy Spirit. You're a son or a daughter of God. First Peter 3 tells us that we have to emphasize the inner part of the human being rather than the outward part. Of course, we do have to make sure that we are honoring God and that it isn't vanity because we are trying to uh, use over, overly uh, much makeup and or we're trying to uh, wear the greatest clothes and flashy uh, suits and uh, dresses at the time. He says, verse 3 of 1 Peter 3, Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning or plating of hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel. Well, obviously, he's, he's saying that the emphasis here, not that you should, you should put on apparel, um, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So what is it that is, makes you you? What is the inner woman? What is the inner man? What is more important, outside appearance or inner character? Verse 5, For after this manner in old time the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. So again, we have to be of one mind. Verse 8, having compassion one of another, love as brethren. Compassionate, pitiful, courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. Ephesians, the third chapter. Oh, I just think I read that. No, I didn't. Ephesians 3, verse uh, 16, breaking in the middle of a thought here that, as I quoted earlier, God is the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Ephesians 3:15. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to understand and comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, the whole way of life, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, of course, when we're born into God's kingdom, we will be filled with that fullness. We will, this mortal must put on immortality, and this corruption must put on incorruption. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And I hope if you are bold in the faith that you will claim these promises, that you'll ask God to do exceeding abundantly above all that you think to ask or imagine, that you won't be cowardly that you'll have boldness in the faith, as it tells us in 1 Timothy 3, as a qualification for a deacon, who have boldness, great boldness in the faith. So there's the uh, Proverbs that says, uh, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. As bold in the faith, not being ashamed of Christ, not being ashamed of the way of life. What should our attitude be? Let's turn to uh, James, the fourth chapter, James 4. We want to pursue lasting values. 
And one of those values we've emphasized earlier is that of relationships. I remember a young freshman ambassador student, and uh, he was in my speech class, and he didn't want to have relationships with other people. He said, well, he, in his icebreaker, he told about growing up in the farm and how he loved the chickens and the ducks. And uh, he didn't want to be near people. Uh, well, look, your purpose in life is to have a relationship with God and to have a relationship with other people. And it's to love your neighbors as yourself, to love God wholeheartedly. But you don't want to have a friendship with the world because he says here in verse 4 of James 4, you adulteresses and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoso therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Or as other translations have it, Moffat translation, he that is God yearns jealously for the spirit he set within us. So once we have God's spirit in us, God yearns jealously for that spirit. He doesn't want you to be committing adultery with the world. He that is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You are betrothed to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And we have to be pure and faithful to the bridegroom. And that means we better be careful about our relationships with the world. And that we are fulfilling the Ten Commandments. We don't commit adultery either uh, in our minds or in our bodies. But we also have this faithfulness of God. It says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 8, because many of us are double-minded, we need to pray that we can have singleness of mind. As Jesus said, if your eye is full of, is, is single, then your body will be filled with light. I, uh, I guess some of you have heard about the last great day uh, afternoon services we had in Copper Mountain. We had uh, Mr. Sheldon Munson gave the sermonette and... Uh, then we had a beautiful uh, choral music, New Heavens and New Earth, led by uh, Mr. James Wells. And then after that, we began uh, Mr. Meredith's video message for the last great day. And then 10 minutes into the video, uh, the lights went off. All the electricity went off. And in the morning, I had mentioned how in 1987 in Tulsa, the lights had gone out on the last service of the last great day. And so uh, Mr. Ben Whitfield and I discussed it and said, well, we'll We'll wait a few minutes, see if the lights come back on, which they did not. And so I was volunteered to uh, speak in the dark to our audience. And uh, the brethren were well prepared. Of course, that's another lesson, be prepared. They loaned me five flashlights. And so I was able to see some notes and the Bible and to speak to the brethren on that last great day. One was a little froggy um, uh, flashlight that attached to my shirt, so it shone right down on my Bible. So I was able to, to read that. But, you know, God's people were so calm, they, they didn't get upset at all. We sang, finally concluded services, sang a hymn in the dark, and, and had a closing prayer by Mr. Whitfield. And, you know, there's some object lesson there that, I mean, for speakers. You know, there's a time when we will not have electricity. We may be in the dark. You may not be able to see your Bible. You may not be able to see your notes. But you should be able to communicate heartfelt convictions and truth and values and your belief. So I hope that all of us are growing in that area. There are strong beliefs that we can develop and have, and I hope that uh, all of us 
we'll, be, we'll all be tested, not one way, one way or another, uh, towards that kind of situation. But here in James, we find in James 2 that there is faith with works. How do you know, vain man, that faith without works is dead? James 2, verse 20. There were those who said, well, look, you have faith, verse 18, and I have works. So that's okay. You can be a faith person and I can be a works person. But James says, no, you can't have it both ways. You demonstrate your faith by your works, verse 22. See you how faith wrought, wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? So it isn't a matter, again, of faith or works, but it's faith and works. It's the same way as uh, William Barclay in his commentary brings out on James, which is surprising because the world thinks it's grace or law, not law and grace, as we teach and believe. But Barclay brings out not either or, but both and. And I have to warn you that many of our brethren in the church fall into this trap of either or. Now, sometimes it is a truism and the reality is either or, but not automatically. And it's not either faith or works. It's both faith and works. And some of our brethren uh, get who are not educated enough or who are not thinking properly are narrow-minded to the point that they cannot think of two things being additional to the Bible. I remember, I think it was Dr. Charles Dorothy years ago, talking about the Bible and how the Bible is not a problem of subtraction, but a problem of addition. When you go through the Gospel accounts, for example, you'll find Matthew, Mark, and Luke describing the writing over Jesus' uh, cross, the, the, the writing that was there, all have different uh, sayings. So are they contradictory? No, the Word of God cannot be broken. So you add up those different statements to get the full understanding of what was really written on that place. And as Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So we have to be additional. And the people in God's churches are starting, some of them, are getting so picky and narrow-minded. And I want to give you a warning along that line. For example, someone said, well... Um, you said in your statement of beliefs that, that the gospel includes the matter of Christ and his sacrifice, which it does in 1 Corinthians 15. And we preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. But you didn't put gospel of kingdom of God first. So therefore, you are wrong. That kind of narrow-minded thinking is pharisaical and it's legalistic. And I want to mention also that some who follow that kind of approach who in some cases are putting statements Mr. Armstrong made as higher than Christ, higher than the gospel, I tremble for and I fear for them because they are not putting Christ first in their life. And we have been emphasizing that for years. It's Christ whom we're marrying. And he's coming back and he said, Abide in me and I in you, in John 15. And later in 1 John he says, Abide in, John writes, says, abide in him that when, when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. We are going to be joined to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So let's understand that there is a way of putting all of the truth together. As Barclay writes, it is in the well-proportioned life, there must be thought and action. There must be prayer and effort. There must be faith and works. It's not an either-or 
kind of approach to life. So let's focus on Christ and the work. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Are we told to focus on Christ? Well, yes, we're told to pray our Father in heaven. And we focus on God the Father as well. But here in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, he tells us, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We will finish the race as long as we don't follow after vanity and as long as we are testing ourselves regularly as to what is important in our daily life, in our actions. We need to focus on the core values. And as Mr. Meredith said years ago, it was a quotable quote, saturate your mind with the Word of God, something I remember from uh, decades ago. So God is creating His royal family, and our mission is to help others into God's family. John, the fourth chapter, and verse 34. Because as we do that, we will be gathering fruit unto eternal life. And John 4, you know that scripture by heart, but look at this other section of John 4. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say you not, there are four months, verse 35, John 4. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reaps receives wages and gathers fruit unto life eternal. He that reaps receives wages and gathers fruit unto life eternal. That's what you're doing. In everything you do and think and say, are you storing up treasure in heaven? As we learned on the last great day, what we say and what we do with people around us are going to have eternal effects when the white throne judgment comes, comes to pass. My wife was uh, talking to uh, the manager of the gift shop in the hotel. And uh, I got a little impatient, so I said, well, I'll see you up in the room. Well, anyway, I guess the uh, manager started asking her questions. Where were you? Well, I was at the church convention and up there in Copper Mountain. And, and so she went on and on, and apparently he kept asking questions, and, and uh, she started telling him about the white throne judgment. <laughs> and uh, she finally asked him, uh, are you Christian? He says, uh, I'm Catholic. And, you know, I told my wife that... In essence, she had contributed to his salvation. In other words, if he's not called in this day and age, when he comes up to the white throne judgment, you know what? He's going to remember that conversation. And she had witnessed to that individual. I hope, brethren, that we can realize the kinds of witnesses that we are and the eternal effect and influence that we have on others. Because what we say and what we do may seem inconsequential today. But I thought, as I, I uh, made a mistake in uh, the driving and uh, some other driver got upset at me, and I thought, hmm, the white throne judgment, will I have to apologize to him? <laughs> you know, they will remember this. They will remember what goes on in this life, and everything you do and say can have an influence, either for good or for bad, in turning others to righteousness. And that's what it tells us in Daniel, the 12th chapter, that 
at the very end, we are called to turn many to righteousness. You know that scripture, but let just me let me just read it. Daniel 12. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. Yes, we gather fruit to eternal life as we turn others to righteousness. And our work is not in vanity. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, remember Mr. Crockett's uh, fine sermonette just before the feast, to realize that our focus is on the work. Verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain to the Lord. Solomon understood the vanity of life. It was a striving after wind. They were values of no lasting value. But he finally concluded, you know, in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, or this is the whole man. The world values possessions, power, and position. What do you value most? Do you value God's way of life, his purpose, and the mission for the church? I hope we value most God's gift of truth, of his love, of biblical spiritual values, that we understand that the carnal mind is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Relationships with God the Father and Christ, relationships with other human beings, is a vital, lasting value. We value loving our enemies, just as God loved us when we were his enemies. So, brethren, let's store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Seek lasting values. Ask yourself, are my thoughts and actions helping to build character? Am I creating lasting value? Am I adding to my character or am I subtracting from my character? Am I building character or am I destroying character? Ask yourself, am I tearing down or am I building up? So let's reject vanity, selfishness, useless living that goes nowhere and leads to death. Let's seek the greatest relationships with God, the Father, and Christ that they are offering us and commanding us to enjoy. God has demonstrated his love to you and me. He wants you to understand, to live, and to practice lasting value. And he wants you to be in his family. He will guide you into his kingdom. Because he told us in Philippians 1 and verse 6 that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the very day of Christ. He will bless you, and you yourself will be a lasting value.